Once you're in the mindset of thinking that physics gives us a complete story of physical reality, then panpsychism is absurd because physics doesn't seem to be telling us that electrons are conscious. But once you've really absorbed this view that physical science tells us nothing about the intrinsic nature of matter and that the only thing we know is that some physical entities have a consciousness involving intrinsic nature, panpsychism starts to look much more probable. That was my guest today, the philosopher Philip Goff. Hi everyone, Adrian here. Welcome back to Waking Cosmos, a philosophy podcast which takes an open-minded approach to the mystery of consciousness and its place in reality. Welcome, thank you for joining me. As I mentioned, my guest today is the philosopher Philip Goff, who has recently gained quite a bit of attention for his defence of panpsychism, which is a regular topic of conversation on this podcast. Essentially, panpsychism is the claim that consciousness is fundamental to reality and is ultimately irreducible to purely physical processes. It's a perspective which has gained significant new support in recent years in both philosophy and science. And so today, Philip and I will be exploring the philosophical underpinnings of this view, what makes it plausible, as well as exploring some of its farthest reaching implications to both cosmology and life on this planet. Later, we'll also be exploring Philip's defense of the view that the entire universe has a mysterious kind of mind which seeks towards the realization of value. One of the things that I, I do really like about Philip is his willingness to publicly change his position on things in response to new ideas. And as we'll discuss today, Philip's views about panpsychism continue to evolve and change. So I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you do as well. Just before we begin, let me briefly mention that Waking Cosmos is entirely funded by supporters on Patreon. It's a series that I would love to create on a full-time basis. So if you do enjoy these open-minded yet philosophically focused conversations exploring consciousness and reality, please consider going over to patreon.com slash wakingcosmos and becoming a Patreon subscriber. The link to my Patreon page is in the description and my most sincere thanks to my existing supporters and friends. As always, remember to hit like, give us a nice rating or a good review, depending on where you're listening. The last thing that I need to mention is that if you are a subscriber on YouTube, I encourage you to click the little bell symbol next to the subscribe button, which will give you a notification every time a new episode comes out, which may otherwise be lost in your feed. Uh, so hit that notification bell if you're listening on YouTube. All right, uh, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Without further delay, I give you the philosopher Philip Goff. Hi Philip, how are you doing? Good, thanks. Thanks for thanks for having us on. It's good to be here. Good to be speaking with you. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. I think that the ideas that you're exploring relating to consciousness and and panpsychism in particular are really interesting. And I think you're you're raising a lot of awareness around this uh, real possibility that that consciousness could have a, a deeper place in reality than than scientists and philosophers have typically imagined. Uh, so I'm looking forward to, to getting into your views, Philip, but I think we should probably just start off today by simply defining what we mean by consciousness, as we'll be using this word in our conversation today. So Philip, what is it that you mean when you say consciousness? Yeah, it's, it's actually quite an ambiguous word. It's used in a, in a lot of different ways, in a lot of different contexts. Often I find people use the word consciousness 
to mean something quite sophisticated like self-awareness or, or an awareness of of oneself or one's existence. Some This is something we might be reluctant to ascribe to certain non-human animals, perhaps rabbits. But um, the way I use the word consciousness and the way it's generally used in philosophy, I just mean experience. So pleasure, pain, visual or auditory experiences. These for me are all forms of consciousness. I mean, the philosopher Thomas Nagel famously defined consciousness in this sense with this phrase, what it's like to be something. So Nagel says, something's conscious just in case there's something that it's like to be it. So there's something that it's like for a rabbit to be cold or to be kicked or to have a knife stuck in it, whereas there's nothing that it's like, or so we ordinarily assume, for a table to be cold or to be kicked or to have a knife stuck in it. There's nothing that it's like from the inside, as it were, to be a table. And so we say that in this sense, the rabbit, but not the table, is conscious. So this is this is a, a notion of consciousness that's not particularly sophisticated by organic standards. It's certainly not something we'd be unwilling to ascribe to very, very many non-human animals, unless, you, of course, you're Descartes, who thought rabbits and non, non-human animals are mechanisms. But generally, you know, we're happy to think they have feelings, experiences, and, and that's that's what we mean by consciousness, really. So, of course, science, as we know, has made a lot of amazing progress. We've uh, sent probes out into space and, you know, we've made a lot of discoveries in biology and, and even neuroscience. And uh, yet for all of the achievements that science has made, consciousness, uh, the most immediate fact about the universe that we know of, is uh, still very much a mystery. And arguably, even after a century of neuroscience, we are no closer to understanding what consciousness is and why it exists. So, Philip, why is it that you think consciousness is this hard problem for science? Yeah, I think the core of the problem, it's a complicated debate, but I think the core of the problem is that physical science works with a purely quantitative vocabulary whereas consciousness is an essentially qualitative phenomenon, just in in the sense that it involves qualities. You think about the the blueness of a blue experience or the smell of coffee or the taste of salt. These conscious experiences are essentially defined by these qualities that they involve. And and you just can't capture these kind of qualities in, in the purely quantitative vocabulary of physical science. You can't capture, for example, in, in, in the austere vocabulary of neuroscience, the blueness of a blue experience. And so, so long as you're describing the brain or the mind in a purely quantitative vocabulary, you're, you're inevitably going leave to leave out these qualities and leave out an essential aspect of consciousness itself. You've mentioned that consciousness is this one thing that we uh, that we know about directly. It's this one thing that we know for certain that exists about reality, and I agree with that. Uh, but since it's apparently true, why do you think it is that we do have philosophers and scientists who do deny the existence of consciousness? What do you think leads to this view among some academics that consciousness is just an illusion or that it doesn't really exist? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a puzzling view, I suppose. You know, so I mean, my starting point is that 
nothing is more evident, as you say, nothing is more evident than the reality of feelings and experiences. And so we have to fit them in somehow into our overall theory of reality. You know, if you've got a a theory of reality, you know, physicists talk about the grand unified theory we're aiming for. If if we one day have a theory that can account for all of the data of observation and experiment, but that can't account for the reality of feelings and experiences, then I think that theory cannot be true, or at least cannot be complete. So, you know, I, I think I think a consciousness as a hard datum in its own right, any theory that wants to be a complete theory of reality is obliged to account for the reality of consciousness. But as you say, there are some very good philosophers, um, Keith Frankish, who's a good friend of mine, and um, Daniel Dennett, although Daniel Dennett's a bit slippery, kind of sounds like he means different things at different times, say that the, that the very phenomenon doesn't exist. What's going on there? I suppose I'm inclined to think we're, we're going through a phase of history where people are so rightfully, you know, so blown away by the success of physical science and um, the wonderful technology it's produced, it's transformed our planet, they're so blown away by that that they're inclined to think, oh, that's everything, that must be everything. You know, we've finally found something that works and it, you know, has the, the technology has such a visceral effect on your sort of ontological yearnings and you've, you want to put all your faith in this method that's been so wonderful and has had such positive progress and positive impacts on society. And so if there's something that doesn't fit in there, then you think, well, that, that doesn't exist. It's, it's, it's sort of like fairy dust or magic. And, you, you know, you're so absorbed by that idea that physical science is giving us a complete story of reality that if something doesn't fit into that, it, it, it can't possibly be real. I mean, actually, I think the irony here, in my view, and this is what I'm exploring in, in my new book, Galileo's Error, if I could give a momentary plug for that, the irony here is that I think the reason physical science has been so successful is precisely because it was designed to ignore consciousness. It was designed to put consciousness outside of its domain of inquiry. And so Galileo, the, the father of physical science, w w was quite explicit about this. Can you uh, tell us a bit more about what Galileo's role in science was here? Yeah, absolutely. So a key moment in the scientific revolution was Galileo's declaration that mathematics was to be the language of the new science, that the new science, what he called natural philosophy, what we now call physical science, was to have a purely quantitative vocabulary. So this is a key moment. What's often ignored is the philosophical work Galileo had to do to get to that point. So before Galileo, people thought that the physical world was full of qualities. So the colours on the surfaces of objects, smells floating through the air, tastes in food. Um, and this posed a problem for Galileo because, as we've discussed, it's hard to see how you can capture those kind of qualities in the purely quantitative vocabulary of mathematics. So this was a problem for Galileo's aspiration to exhaustively describe the physical world in mathematics. So Galileo got around this by proposing a radically new speculative philosophical theory of reality. So according to this theory, the qualities aren't really out there in the physical world. They're rather in the soul 
of the observer, which crucially Galileo took to be outside of the domain of science. So, so colors aren't really on the surfaces of objects. Spiciness isn't really in food. Rather, these things, the colors and the spiciness are, are in the soul of the, the observer. So Galileo, as it were, stripped the physical world of its qualities. Uh, and after he'd done that, all that were, remained in the physical world were the purely quantitative features of matter, size, shape, location, these kind of characteristics that can be captured in mathematical geometry. So Galileo's worldview has this radical dualism, this radical division between the physical world with its quantitative properties, which is the domain of science, and the soul with its qualities of consciousness, which is outside of the domain of science. So this is the, this is the start of mathematical physics, which has obviously gone incredibly well, but Crucially, it was never intended to be a complete theory of reality. The whole project for Galileo was premised on setting the qualities of consciousness outside of the domain of science. So, you know, so, so this is really important because I think so many people think, you know, look at the great successes of physical science in explaining more and more of our universe and producing incredible technology and think, oh, that's gone so well. One day it's going to crack the problem of consciousness. But the irony is the reason it's gone so well is that it was designed to avoid the problem of consciousness by setting consciousness outside of its domain. So, if, you know, I think if Galileo were to time travel to the present day and hear about this problem of explaining consciousness in physical science, he'd say, you know, of course you can't do that. I designed physical science to deal with quantities, not qualities. That's why it's been so successful. You're trying to do something with it that it was never intended to do. Right, it's almost like we've forgotten that we partitioned consciousness off from the world. Uh, this reminds me a bit of the explanatory gap, which philosophers sometimes talk about, which is that there does seem to be, as you mentioned, this disconnect between describing qualities and describing quantities. And you know, it's often framed in the context of the brain that even with the most sophisticated account of physical brain processes, this is never going to add up to or arrive at any kind of qualitative language or a description of the qualities of experience. So there is a gap here and, and we don't know how to traverse it. And it seems that Galileo uh, saw this gap and accepted it. Yeah, absolutely. So this is, this is something that's discussed for a fairly long time. I mean, I think things have changed a lot and progressed a lot. For a lot of the 20th century, consciousness was just a completely taboo topic that you know, you couldn't talk about if you wanted to do proper science. You know, I know people who couldn't get jobs. People a generation older than me because they wanted to do the science of consciousness. I mean, this all changed, I think, from the 1990s of figures like David Chalmers with this phrase, the hard problem of consciousness that really caught on. This phrase, that, uh, the, the explanatory gap that, that's really caught the imagination. And this sense that there is something physical science isn't doing. And, and that's really caught the public imagination that there is this hard problem of consciousness, this real serious challenge to science. However, I think still at this stage, many people react to that by saying, okay, there's, th there's this problem, there's this serious problem, but you know, we just need to do more neuroscience. We just need to keep plugging away with our standard methods for investigating the brain and we'll crack it. You know, you hear this in new scientists all the time, very frustrating. So, you know, I guess what I'm trying to get at, I mean, it's not, it's not that this is original to me, it's, it's more that 
I'm trying to, you know, get across more to the public and the scientific community, the philosophical underpinnings of the problem of consciousness. And this is, you know, perhaps best captured with this talk of qualities and quantities that, um, you know, th this isn't just another another scientific problem. This is a problem that is built into the very scientific revolution, the very paradigm of science we've been operating with for the past four or five hundred years. And you know, I think this is, this is important for another reason. I think the fiddly arguments that I, I spend a lot of my time as a professional philosopher dealing with fiddly arguments, and that's good, it's, it's important, but I think that never really persuades people. I think what persuades people is the big picture and is a narrative, a narrative about that makes sense of how we understand the world and, and makes sense of the success of science. And so, so I, think, I think what I'm trying to get across is really more of a narrative of explaining the success of science, but explaining that in a way that's consistent with taking the problem of consciousness very seriously, and indeed taking it so seriously that it advances rethinking what science is for us right now. So let's get further into your particular views about consciousness, because you argue that consciousness uh, could in fact be a fundamental feature of reality, which is, of course, a form of panpsychism. So could you talk a bit more about this form of panpsychism that you defend? Yeah, so the particular form I'm attracted to, and in fact, I mean, the reason why panpsychism that used to be laughed at for so long, insofar as it was thought about at all, is now getting taken much more seriously in academic philosophy, is largely due to the rediscovery of really, really important work from the 1920s by uh, the philosopher and Nobel laureate uh, Bertrand Russell and the great scientist Arthur Eddington, who was incidentally the first scientist to experimentally confirm general relativity after the First World War. But I, I'm inclined to think these guys did in the 1920s for the science of consciousness, what Darwin did in the 19th century for the science of life. And I think it's a tragedy of history that for various historical reasons it got forgotten about. But it's in the last 10 or 15 years, it's, it's, it's getting rediscovered in, um, in academic philosophy and is causing a lot of excitement. And, you know, what I'm trying to do really is get this across to a broader audience. Philosophers are not, are not very good at reaching out to a broader audience in general. They just end up talking to themselves. So I really want to get this view out to a broader audience so that as, as a scientific community, we can start to fill in some of the details. So to come to the view itself, so Russell and Eddington's starting point really was that physical science tells you a lot less than you think about the nature of matter. So I think in, in the public mind, physical science is on its way to giving us this complete story of the nature of space and time and matter. But what Russell and Eddington realized is that it becomes apparent upon reflection that actually physical science is just confined to telling us about the behavior of matter, about what matter does. So if you think about what physics, what does, what does physics tell us about an electron? Physics tells us, for example, that an electron has mass and negative charge. What does physics tell us about these properties, mass and negative charge? Mass is characterized in terms of gravitational attraction and resistance to acceleration. Charge is, is characterized in terms of attraction and repulsion. So this all concerns the behavior of the electron, what it does 
In fact, physics has absolutely nothing to say about what philosophers like to call the, the intrinsic nature of the electron, how the electron is in and of itself and independently of its external behavior. So, so in fact, it turns out there's this huge gap in our scientific picture of the world. Physical science tells us a great deal about the behavior of matter, but it leaves us completely in the dark about the intrinsic nature of matter and space and time and fields and particles. So this is sometimes called the problem of intrinsic natures. So what's this got to do with consciousness? I think um, the genius of Russell and Eddington was to bring together two problems that on the face of it have nothing to do with each other. On the one hand, the problem of consciousness and the, and the other hand, the, the problem of intrinsic natures and to see that they could be given a unified solution. So the problem of consciousness is roughly this challenge of finding a place for consciousness in our scientific theory of the world, our scientific worldview. The problem of intrinsic natures is that we have this huge hole in our scientific worldview. So the unified solution is roughly put consciousness in the hole, right? You're looking for a place for consciousness. You've got this hole, put consciousness in the hole. So, so the result is, as you say, a kind of panpsychism. But the view is, you know, there's just matter. There's just physical stuff, the subject matter of physical science, indeed. Um, nothing supernatural. But matter can be described from two perspectives. Physical science describes matter, as it were, from the outside. It tells us what it does, its behavior. But from the inside, in terms of its intrinsic nature, matter is constituted of forms of consciousness. So this is a beautifully simple, elegant, unified way of integrating consciousness into our scientific worldview. And it does so in a way that, unlike dualism, arguably, is, is completely consistent with everything we know about the body and the brain scientifically. So, so you know, I think this is a really, really powerful and uh, very much motivated worldview. Right. So in this view that you're describing, the intrinsic nature of the world to which all of our physics and all of our equations point to is not provided in any way by, by physics. But we may in fact have some access to it due to the intrinsic nature of our conscious minds. And so uh, consciousness in this view is an intrinsic nature. Could you say a bit more about why consciousness is an intrinsic nature and why it's also a good candidate for being the intrinsic nature of all reality? Yeah. So as you say, the view really is there's just physical stuff, but there's more to physical stuff than, than physics tells us about or that physical science tells us about. Um, physical science just tells us what it does, but tells us nothing about its intrinsic nature, how it is in and of itself. Now you might you might accept that and you might be left with a kind of radical skepticism. You might think, oh well we just don't know anything about the intrinsic nature of the physical world. It's a complete mystery. Some modern Kantians have this kind of view. Uh, they, they you know they agree with this negative thesis that physical science doesn't really tell us what matter is in its intrinsic nature, but they just think, well, we can never know. But what Russell and Eddington thought is, well, actually, we do have one insight into the intrinsic nature of matter. We know that at least some of matter, namely our own brains, 
has a consciousness involving intrinsic nature. We know that because of our immediate awareness of our own conscious experience, our own feelings and experiences. And assuming that, I mean, if you're a dualist, then they are features of an immaterial soul. But it, if, if we suppose the falsity of dualism, then our conscious experience, our feelings and experiences are the intrinsic nature of a living, functioning brain. So actually, once you really absorb this starting point of this Russell and Eddington picture, it, it sort of turns the mind-body problem on its head. People usually think, oh, you know, the physical world and, and the brain is what we really understand. The trick is how to fit this mysterious thing, consciousness, in. But actually, if Russell and Eddington were right, the one thing we know about reality is that some matter, namely functioning brains, have a consciousness involving intrinsic nature. Once you've really absorbed this, this Russell Eddington starting point, I've argued that the most simple, elegant speculation is that matter outside of brains has a nature that's continuous with matter inside of brains and also having a consciousness involving nature. You know, to put it another way, you'd need a reason to suppose that matter has two kinds of intrinsic nature, consciousness intrinsic nature and non-consciousness intrinsic nature, rather than the more parsimonious proposal that it just has one kind of intrinsic nature. But once you're in the mindset of thinking that physics gives us a complete story of physical reality, you know, then panpsychism is absurd because physics doesn't seem to be telling us that electrons are conscious. But once you've really absorbed this view that physical science tells us nothing about the intrinsic nature of matter, and that the only thing we know is that some physical entities have a consciousness involving intrinsic nature, panpsychism starts to look much more probable. I think for, for panpsychism to be plausible, there does need to be some reason for why we should expect something like consciousness or mentality to exist fundamentally at the ground floor of reality. And I think this is why the view that you're defending is, is very interesting and attractive, because it does seem to frame uh, physics as requiring something very much like consciousness. There's this sort of outer, objective description of the world which science uh, provides very well. Uh, but that description arguably also implies a, a grounding interior dimension of that reality, what it is in itself. And consciousness is uh, not only the only intrinsic nature that we know of, uh, but it also seems to be exactly the sort of thing that we need to, to fill this gap. Yeah, absolutely. I guess there are two reasons to postulate consciousness at this fundamental level. I mean, one is the hope ultimately of giving an, an explanation, uh, an account of human and animal consciousness, right? We've, we've tried for decades now to explain consciousness in terms of non-consciousness, and we've got precisely nowhere. I mean, neuroscience has provided lots of extraordinary data that a, that a science of consciousness needs to take seriously. But on that central question of trying to solve the hard problem, of trying to explain why consciousness exists at all, materialism, I think, has, has got precisely nowhere. So this is proposing a, an alternative research program rather than try and explain consciousness in terms of non-consciousness. We try to explain complex forms of consciousness, the consciousness of humans and animals in terms of simpler forms of consciousness, simple forms of consciousness that are then postulated to exist as basic constituents of matter. And, you know, 
in fact, there's, there's plenty of precedent in science for non-reductive explanations. If we think, for example, uh, Maxwell's theory of electromagnetism. Maxwell in the 19th century, he didn't explain electricity and magnetism in terms of mechanistic properties and laws that science was already committed to. Rather, he postulated new electromagnetic properties and forces and explained electromagnetism on that basis. So the hope of the panpsychist, you know, and, and it's early days in any theory of consciousness, but the hope of the panpsychist is that when the theory of final theory of consciousness eventually comes along, the thought is it won't explain consciousness in terms of non-consciousness. I think it's a prejudice of materialists to suppose that's what we have to do. It will rather explain complex forms of consciousness in terms of simpler forms of consciousness, simple forms of consciousness which are then taken as basic. So that, that, that's one important reason. The other is, as you've already alluded to, actually physical science doesn't give us a complete account even of inanimate matter, even of electrons, you know, even forgetting consciousness for the moment. It doesn't give us a complete account of what, what a quark is. It tells us what a quark does. It doesn't tell us what it is. Uh, and panpsychists have a positive proposal as to, uh, at least in broad brushstrokes, the intrinsic nature of of basic matter, one that is, is is continuous with the only thing we really know about the intrinsic nature of matter, which is that some of it involves consciousness. So if this uh, species of, of panpsychism that you're describing is, is correct, consciousness would be the uh, intrinsic nature of matter. So we have a real physical world, as you describe, but in a way, it's uh, made of consciousness. And uh, Arthur Reddington, I believe, once said that the uh, the stuff of the world is mind stuff. Uh, so, I mean, as far as I can tell, this view is not that far from idealism. So for you, what would you say is the distinction here between panpsychism and idealism at this level? I would say that, that they are overlapping views, panpsychism and idealism. So if you imagine a kind of Venn diagram, there is an overlapping bit where there are views that are both panpsychism and idealism, but there are also views that are panpsychist and not idealist, and views that are idealist and not panpsychist. So that the panpsychist thinks that consciousness is a fundamental and ubiquitous feature of reality, but they might think there are also non-mental aspects to basic matter. So they might think, you know, quarks have very basic mental properties, but they might also have non-mental properties. And then that wouldn't be a form of idealism, because the idealist thinks that the basic fundamental nature of reality is purely mental. A panpsychist might think that, and then they'd be an idealist of a kind, but they might, they might deny that. It's not true by definition that a panpsychist is an idealist. Conversely, you have forms of idealism uh, like Berkeleyan idealism, the view of George Berkeley, the great 18th century idealist, where the physical world is not fundamental. So for Berkeley, a table, a physical table, is a collection of ideas, either in our mind or in the mind of God. A lot of people interpret that as meaning, oh, well, the physical world doesn't really exist. But actually, Berkeley would question that. He thinks the physical world exists, but it's not fundamental. The, the physical world is a, is a construction out of human minds. So I think that's inconsistent with panpsychism because the panpsychist thinks the physical world is fundamental. They believe in the hard physical world out there. They just think it's, it involves consciousness. 
it's it's it can be a form of idealism, but it's quite in some ways quite close to materialism. Both the materialist and the panpsychist think, you know, I'm looking at a table in front of me now, right now. Uh, the table is really out there, you know, outside of my perception of it. Barclay would disagree with that. Barclay would think, no, no, the, the table is just exists in my mind. Whereas the, the panpsychist materialists think the table is really out there independently of my mind. It's just that it's made up of little conscious things. So, yeah, so they're, they're, they're importantly related views, but there are also ways in which they can come apart. Philip, how do you respond to people who just recoil at the weirdness of panpsychism? It's, it seems to have this slightly hippie, new age vibe about it. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of people, it is getting taken much more seriously, but very much in academic philosophy and also to an extent in neuroscience because of the interest in Giulio Tononi's integrated information theory, which has panpsychist implications. But there are still some people who just can't stand these kind of, um, as you say, hippie connotations in scare quotes. My view is, look, we should judge of you not by its cultural connotations, but by its explanatory power. And what panpsychism offers us is, is, is a way of integrating consciousness into our scientific worldview in a way that's completely consistent with everything we know scientifically. That's a huge theoretical plus. And, and to my mind, the, the, the the idea that it always feels a bit weird doesn't doesn't really count for much. I mean, I've started to think much more, actually, terms like new age are sort of a term of abuse, maybe a little bit akin to racist terms, that they, you know, they capture a, a range of views in terms of their content, but they also have this implication that, you know, you sort of fluffy-minded and not really thought it through seriously, and so we can just dismiss them quite quickly. And of course, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there there is a lot of such views that that, that are defended non rigorously, you know, as there are in in materialist views as well. But there are also there's no reason why you can't uh, defend these kind of views with 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 academic seriousness and with with, with scientific and philosophical rigor. So you know, I really think there there is. I'm not saying there's a, there's a deliberate conspiracy here, but there is perhaps partly in reaction to the you know certain movements in the 60s there is a a kind of way in which this these terms are loaded to allow us to dismiss and ignore certain views yeah maybe i could just take a moment to to connect this panpsychist sort of view of reality that you're talking about with the the larger story that science gives us about ourselves in the universe because Arguably, the, the progress of science has continually challenged any sense of our significance or our centrality in the universe. And, you know, we now know that we're not really the center of anything. We're not fundamentally different to animals. And, you know, we zoom out and all in all, we appear to have a very peripheral place in reality, as Stephen Hawking described us as a, a chemical scum uh, smeared across the surface of the planet. But the view that you and other panpsychists are describing, I think, kind of goes against that narrative in a way, because if consciousness is not an illusion and our minds are, in fact, continuous with reality's evolving mental aspect, 
not so much in our identity as humans, maybe, but as our identity as conscious beings, we do reflect a very deep and, and significant part of reality. And, you know, we really are the universe becoming aware and experiencing itself. And as far as I can tell, that really changes things and our, maybe our orientation to the rest of the universe. Yeah, I mean, so I think when we're doing science or we're doing philosophy, we, we should certainly be thinking about not which view we'd like to be true, but which view is most likely to be true. And I think that there there is a, a very good case for panpsychism as the best the best account of how consciousness fits into our scientific worldview. Nonetheless, it's also interesting to think about the, the implications of a view for the meaning of human existence and human happiness. In my new book, you know, the most of it, the first four chapters are dealing with this, this reality question, what view is most likely to be true and building a scientific and philosophical case for panpsychism. But in the final chapter, I get on to think, well, what implications, if any, does, does this view have for human meaning and human existence? And I am inclined to think that panpsychism, as well as being um, probably true, is, is slightly better for our um, mental and spiritual health. You know, materialism is, it's a pretty dismal worldview. You know, you've got a, an essentially mechanistic picture of nature and, uh, you know, then you've got the cold immensity of empty space. You know, it's, 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 it's pretty bleak. Whereas in a panpsychist worldview, this is, this is a, we are conscious creatures in a conscious universe. This is a universe we fit into, um, a universe where we can perhaps feel a little bit more comfortable in our own skin. So I think this is in some way a little bit more attractive picture of reality. Also, I think perhaps it can allow for a better relationship to the environment. You know, the ter- we're going through terrible environmental crisis right now. If you're a materialist and you think plants and trees are, are mechanisms, essentially, are non-conscious mechanisms, then really you're going to think of the value of, of plants and trees indirectly in terms of the effect it has on us conscious creatures, you know, either looking pretty or, or more importantly, sustaining our existence. But if you're a panpsychist and if you think plants and trees are conscious, then, then, then a tree is, is a locus of moral importance in its own right. Chopping down a tree is, is an act of immediate moral significance. So I think this is, is transformative of of our relationship with nature um, encourages a very different relationship, I think, with the natural world. Yeah, and you contrasted panpsychism with a mechanistic view of reality. And I think panpsychism, importantly, is also a more organismic view of the universe. If, if consciousness plays a deep role in reality, that's alive to me. I'm, I'm pretty happy with that definition. And so for me, the idea of an organism is a much more resonant metaphor for the universe than a machine. I don't know if you agree with that, but do you think panpsychism is, in a sense, a kind of return to a more enchanted scientific animism? Yeah, I mean, I think these are, to, to an extent, as I think you'd agree, metaphors or analogies, ways of, ways of thinking of, of nature or reality rather than actually the bare bones of the view itself. But yeah, I, you're perhaps right that that thinking in, ter- in organic terms of, of the universe more generally is perhaps a more apt metaphor and, and one that 
is slightly more consonant with with human happiness. You know, it has to be said that not all panpsychists will think the universe itself is conscious. Contrary to to the definition of the word panpsychism, meaning everything has mind, actually, m- many contemporary panpsychists don't think that literally everything is conscious. The view is that the, the basic constituents of physical reality, perhaps electrons and quarks, have some form of very basic consciousness. And, and of course, that humans and many animals and m- many organisms are conscious. But they, a lot of panpsychists won't think that just any combination of atoms is conscious. They needn't think, say, a rock is conscious, if there's no kind of natural unity there. And, and they needn't think that, that the universe as a whole is conscious. Although it's, you know, it's, it's not too much of an addition to basic panpsychist view to take the universe to be some kind of conscious entity. And, and there may be theoretical advantages to doing so. But that would be a, you know, a further step. Right, so you've you've hinted at your uh, view of of cosmopsychism. So your your panpsychism has ultimately led you to what you've called cosmopsychism, and this is a view in which the entire universe is associated with a single consciousness of some description. Can you uh, take us through how you move from the more traditional Russellian panpsychism to cosmopsychism and this cosmic mind that you've talked about? Yeah, so this is a view I. Um... I defend in my book. It's not necessarily the view I think. I think it's early days in in a theory of consciousness, and I'm I'm very much open to ex- exploring me- many different options. And in my new book, actually, I'm I'm becoming less attracted to the the, the cosmopsychist view. It's partly influenced by very interesting work by the philosopher Jonathan Schaffer, who's a, a, a philosopher at Rutgers University, who's not a panpsychist at all, who's um, very much a, a mainstream metaphysician, but he's been exploring for the past 15 years so and rigorously defending a view he calls priority monism. So f- perhaps the way into that is to think that philosophers and scientists tend to assume that fundamental things are, are at the micro level. You know, it's a sort of Lego brick picture of reality. You know, you've got these little particles, you stick them together and you get big things. You got little things, put them together, you get big things. But on Jonathan Schaffer's priority monist view, this is sort of turned on its head. And actually, the one fundamental thing is the universe as a whole. And everything else exists and is the way it is because it is a part of the universe. So as you think of it, turning to the Lego analogy, you know, we if you have a Lego tower, we tend to think, the tower is built up from the bricks. The tower exists and is the way it is because the bricks exist and are located, arranged as they are. But Schaffer would have it the other way around. He thinks, no, no, it's the tower that's the, the primary thing. And the bricks exist and are located as they are because the tower exists and is the way it is. So he thinks, you know, parts exist in virtue of holes rather than the other way around. And he's argued in great detail that this actually, you know, fits a lot better with um, contemporary science, for example, fits better with um, quantum entanglement, one of the most well-confirmed phenomena in, um, in in modern science. So this is the, you know, we don't want to get into too many of the details, but roughly the phenomenon according to which particles at great distances from each other, so distant from each other that there'd be no time for a, a signal to pass between them, nonetheless behave as a kind of unity. Now, if you're in a kind of um, bottom-up, micro-based picture of the world, 
it's hard to make sense of this. How, how are these particles behaving as a unified whole? But if actually you think the pair of particles that's the fundamental thing, the, the unity of the pair of the particles that is primary, then quantum entanglement ma ma makes a lot of sense. There could be properties of that pair, that pair of particles, that, that, that are not reducible to the, the two particles in isolation. So, so this is a picture of the world that, that, that this kind of top-down picture of the world, universe-first picture of the world that, you know, many ways fits better with modern science. You combine that with panpsychism, then you get a form of cosmopsychism, that it's the universe as a whole, the conscious universe as a whole, that is the one fundamental thing. It's interesting that we have made this seemingly unexamined assumption about reality that smaller things are more fundamental than bigger things but uh, yeah as you point out this is not necessarily the case and actually it seems quite natural to see the universe itself as as the most fundamental reality so I, I just want to bring in here because traditionally there is this famous combination problem that people raise to panpsychism which we haven't touched on yet but Maybe you could describe the, the combination problem for people that might be new to it, and in particular, how you see cosmopsychism responding to it. Yeah, so this is the combination problem is broadly accepted as the most serious challenge to the panpsychist research program. And indeed, much of the time and energy of the contemporary panpsychist research program is spent trying to address this problem. So, roughly, it's the problem of how do you get from facts about particle consciousness to facts about human and animal consciousness. You know, it's all, it's all very well postulating that little things at the micro level have some kind of experience, but what we ultimately want to explain, our, our, our pre-theoretical starting point is our consciousness or the consciousness of other organisms. And, you know, if we can't get from the particle consciousness facts to the human or animal consciousness facts, then we haven't got very far. So this is very, a very serious problem. I mean, just to give the intuitive flavour of it, we can make sense of inorganic parts or organic parts making holes, parts of a car engine making up a functioning car engine, parts of the body making the organism. But the idea of lots of little minds coming together to make a big mind, to many this feels puzzling or just even unintelligible. So it's a serious problem, but there's already... Um, some really interesting proposals. Uh, for example, um, Luke Roloffs, who's a uh, research fellow at the University of Bochum, he's about to start at NYU actually, um, got a very interesting recent book called Combining Minds with Oxford University Press. Part of what he's doing there is, is reflecting on um, split brain cases. So these are, I'm sure you know, cases where people have the, the corpus callosum in the middle of their brain severed. It's a very radical treatment for epilepsy. And this results in a, in a very peculiar fragmentation of consciousness. It ends up looking like these, these patients have two conscious minds in one brain. So in a way, split brain cases are the sort of reverse of mental combination. You know, with, with, with a split brain case, you've got one subject fragmenting into multiple subjects, whereas in mental combination, the hope is that you get multiple conscious subjects coming together to constitute one. So that, so Roloff's thought is, you know, if we can kind of understand what's going on in split brain cases and, and, and as it were, reverse engineer that, then that might help us get more of a grip on mental combination. It also seems to give us reason to think that, that there is mental combination because it looks in the split brain cases that 
something to do with having the corpus callosum intact makes the difference between having multiple subjects and having a single subject. I mean, also an, another option for solving the uh, combination problem is just to postulate basic principles of nature linking the facts about particles to the facts about human and animal biological consciousness. This is sometimes called emergentist panpsychism. And one of the leading proponents of this is Hedda Hassel-Murk, who's currently at the uh, University of Oslo. And she's actually developing a very interesting form of emergentist panpsychism in, in the context of Giulio Tononi's integrated information theory, which is you know, one of the leading, most promising neuroscientific theories of consciousness, also defended by Christoph Koch, who's, who's got a, a book coming out on panpsychism towards the end of the summer as, or in the fall as well. So, you know, really see this, this panpsychism is really taking off both in philosophy and in, um, in neuroscience. But um, so, so according to integrated information theory, th the idea is that consciousness is correlated with maximal integrated information, which is a notion Tononi gives a mathematically precise uh, conception of. So Hedda Hassel-Merck spent a year at Tononi's lab, a great interaction between you know, science and philosophy, working out a panpsychist and emergentist panpsychist interpretation of, of integrated information theory, or IIT as it's often called. And so the resulting theory, theory is roughly that you just have a basic principle of nature that consciousness exists at the level at which you have most integrated information. So I think this is, you know, really the closest, I, I've got, I mean, I don't actually, I've got a lot of problems with this view in many details, but it's, you know, this is the closest we've got to a complete theory of consciousness. I think, I mean, another problem is, you know, people think neuroscience gives us a theory of consciousness, but actually, you know, all, all we get from neuroscience are correlations. You know, you can look inside someone's brain and ask them how they're feeling, what they're experiencing, and we, we can get a rich body of a wonderful rich body of correlations between consciousness and neuro neurophysiological states of the brain. That's all really great, but that's not a science of consciousness. What we then need is a theory to explain those correlations. Why is it that when you have such and such activity in the brain, you have such and such state of consciousness? And, you know, the idea that we can just get that purely from neuroscience is sort of a non-starter. I think we need to be doing the kind of stuff Edda Hasselmerk is doing, bringing together a neuroscientific theory like IIT with a worked out philosophical explanation. So yeah, so the combination, the combination problem is, you know, how to get from the consciousness of little things to the consciousness of bigger things like human or animal brains. But of course, if you're a cosmopsychist, that's not the way it works at all, because the, for the cosmopsychist, parts are grounded in holes rather than the other way around. So for the cosmos, like, you know, we start off with the whole universe. We start off with unity. The challenge is how to get um, fragmentation from unity. So unity looks to be a particular important feature of human consciousness. Human consciousness seems to be deeply unified in a way that it seems hard to see how you could get that from isolated particles interacting in certain complicated ways. But if you're a cosmopsychist, you start off with unity. Uh, you start off with the unity of the whole conscious universe and parts of the universe then exist as aspects of that unity. So there seems perhaps more of a story you could get there as to how, how we get from unity to fragmentation seems a little bit more intelligible than how we get from 
fragmentation to unity. Although it, there are there are difficulties in either case, so it's I don't think it's a knockdown argument. The cosmopsychist faces their own version of the combination problem. It's sometimes called the decombination problem. You know, the conventional panpsychist is how do we get from conscious particles to brains. The cosmopsychist has the problem how do we get from conscious universe to brains. So there there are difficulties in either case. But you might think the cosmopsychist view has certain advantages. I want to bring in cosmology into our conversation, and specifically the apparent fine-tuning、uh, mystery that you've also discussed elsewhere. And so, fine-tuning for people who don't know is、uh, something that has come to light in modern cosmology, and it is that the universe appears to be very finely tuned for life, and that there are a number of values which, if they were just very slightly, slightly different, in in some cases just a fraction of a percent. No life could have existed anywhere in the universe at all, and so it seems that a life-friendly universe occurring by chance is actually trillions to one. And so, how do we explain this? And some thinkers take this to be evidence of a multiverse, and some take this to be evidence of a god.、Uh, but Philip, you've suggested that what fine-tuning could be an indication of is that the universe actually requires conscious life. To emerge, and specifically that this connects to the value which conscious life is bringing into the universe. So, can you take us through this? What does it mean to say that value, in some sense, shapes the universe? Yeah. So this is somewhat of an experimental, even by my standards, was somewhat of an experimental paper.、Um, it's not necessarily a view I ultimately support. In fact, I'm actually coming back to be more. Inclined towards a version of the multiverse theory, which I was just talking about this in Germany last week, because many of the concerns I had with the multiverse theory were framed in terms of the, the most popular version that's wheeled in to deal with fine tuning, namely that those based in inflationary cosmology. But I've actually come to see that there's another version of the, of the multiverse theory rooted in、um, Everetti and many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics that that avoids many of the problems I had. So I'm currently working on a paper on that with、um, Al Wilson, who's a philosopher of physics in Birmingham. But but you know, I, still I think it's important to the, the fine tuning is such a puzzling phenomenon that I really think it you know it is important to try out different views in a you know in a in a spirit of humility and open mindedness. So the view I was exploring in this paper. Was to see if a, a form of cosmopsychism could perhaps help us deal with fine tuning. I think the crucial modification you have to make to the view is you have to suppose, as you've already alluded to, that the、um, that the universe, in some sense, responds to value. Is it is perhaps in some sense promoting the good? You know, we we tend to assume, and you know, most even most panpsychists tend to assume that the universe is just driven by kind of brute causal forces like gravity. You know, and it's just there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just one event after another in accordance with mathematical laws of nature. But as、uh, the great Scottish philosopher David Hume observed a few centuries ago, we can't actually directly perceive the inner workings of causation. All we can observe are one event following another, what Hume called constant conjunction, and then we can speculate about the underlying causal workings. So I, I suggest in this article, it's it's consistent with observation to suppose that actually the universe is is acting in a way that's in some sense responsive to value. 
in some sense, it's promoting the good. Now, you might think at first this is obviously ridiculous because if the universe was promoting the good, then presumably you might think things would be a lot better than they in fact are. You know, you think the, the universe would be teeming with intelligent life and there wouldn't be famines and disease and earthquakes and so on. This is similar to the problem of evil and suffering for classical theism, classical traditional belief in God. Uh, so the view I was considering was that <clears throat> that the universe is an entity that's trying to promote the good or responding to value, but it's constrained by very limited causal capacities. Not in the sense that there's something outside of it that's constraining it, but just in the sense that its, its causal capacities are quite limited. So classical theism, cl traditional belief in God assumes that God is all powerful, can do anything. But I don't think we need to think that a cosmic subject is all powerful. Um, in fact, so on this view, I take on this view that the laws of physics to actually describe the, the limitations of the of the causal powers of the universe, right? So the universe is trying to promote the good, but under quite constrained causal capacities. Then you might concede, okay, maybe this is in some sense consistent with observation, but why on earth should we take it to be true? Well, here the thought is that it provides an explanation of the fine tuning. So the, the speculative thought would be that in the Planck epoch, which is the first split second of the universe when our kind of current models break down, the universe was able to shape the constants that would govern it thereafter and managed to do so in a way that was consistent with the possibility of things of great value like intelligent life and people falling in love and writing poetry. You know, with many, most of the other value, values of these constants, you just have a world with just hydrogen, the simplest element and no chemical complexity, very little or no value at all. So, you know, this is hugely speculative, but to be honest, all of our current accounts of fine tuning are hugely speculative and have deep, deep problems. And so, you know, I think it's uh, worth just exploring different different possibilities. I think if we do uh, take consciousness seriously as something that we do have various reasons to consider could be a fundamental ingredient of reality, then, like you said, it is a, a natural step to consider that it plays some role in the universe. And I think a, a very natural role for consciousness to play is in the realization of value. So to, so to clarify, you're saying that the universe in, in having conscious beings has greater value and that this is, in fact, mysteriously connected to its ability to exist. And certainly Alfred North Whitehead some, said something like this. I think he said that existence itself is an expression of value intensity or, or something along those lines. So you're in good company there. Relating to this sort of issue of the problem of evil, I don't know if it is, or even just that the universe could have a lot more value than it does. I don't know if this is necessarily true, but I think that there is a, a defensible argument that there is a lot more suffering or negative experiences going on in the world than positive ones, especially when you consider the natural world and uh, the sort of endless cycles of predation that animals are going through with each other. And so I think it's defensible, at least, that right now that there are more negative experiences or negative value in consciousness in general than positive experiences all in all. So, you know, perhaps in, in terms of the universe being sensitive to the value of future states of itself, 
Perhaps it's more like we're at the beginning of a very long journey, perhaps billions of years, during which the universe actually explores its full mental potential. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the physicist Paul Davies, but he's argued in, in sort of a similar way that we should consider the possibility and perhaps even the high likelihood that the ongoing development of life and consciousness, through that the universe is eventually going to achieve a kind of self-realized state. And so... Uh, perhaps in which all of the matter and the energy available has been optimized for this consciousness. So what do you think about that? Could the ultimate value of this state be what the universe is teleologically driven towards? Yeah, that's really interesting. So, I mean, in these papers I've written, they are simply, you know, cold-blooded scientific stroke philosophical attempts to explain an observable phenomenon you know i don't i don't call it god i don't discuss the spiritual significance and you know i mean and, and one could just might be inclined to take that theory seriously without thinking that it has any kind of bearing on the significance of their lives so i think i think it's important to sharply distinguish these things you know the the, the scientific questions from the the spiritual or the meaning questions and certainly the view doesn't imply, I, I don't, or I don't see why it would imply the, the kind of things you're getting at. It, you know, it could be that the universe is so constrained that um, it, it's just not going to be able to get much. All it was able to do is create a kind of universe in which you'd eventually evolve intelligent life. But this is pretty much the end of it. Sadly, everything's going to die out and we'll have heat death. And, you know, the universe at its best, uh, I, you know, I, th I think we can't... Um, rule out that possibility which is terribly terribly sad however i think you know the religious impulse in my view or the spiritual impulse if you prefer should be thought of as more about hope rather than belief you know people think about spirituality or religion as about belief but i think it's much more about hope and i think you know we naturally hope that there's a purpose to existence and i think that can be rational even if even if you don't have enough evidence to believe that there's a purpose to the universe. You know, to take an analogy, if you're just thinking about evidence to believe, I think we, we all really ought to think that human beings are not going to deal with climate change because it just doesn't look like we're, we're up to the task. But nonetheless, it can still be rational to hope, to hope that we'll deal with it and to, and to live that hope more importantly. Similarly, even if there is not evidence to believe the things you were, you were just outlining. Maybe there is. I'd be interested if you think there is. But even if there isn't, it might still be rational to hope. I think, you know, individuals and communities are, are happier, I believe, when you, you, know, you hope there's a greater purpose to it all and you, you conceive of what you're doing and your contribution to society and the world in terms of that, that greater hope. I think, you know, we're seeing the rise of nationalism at the moment. And I think, our current intellectual worldview tells us, you know, that, that there is no purpose to it all. And I think people think it's irrational to think any different. I think people are really craving some sort of, of, of hope uh, that can give meaning to their lives. And yeah, I think this this could be what one way of making sense of it. It's not something I've uh, explicitly worked out myself. You know, I've just dealt with these things in a sort of cold-blooded scientific stroke philosophical manner but yeah it certainly is something i'd like to explore in in later work thinking more about these questions of the meaning of existence which are so important i think right and i don't uh, disagree with any of that actually and i really was sort of simply getting at that 
perhaps that there is a fully realized state of the universe and that that is in fact the the attractor or the the value state to which the universe is primordially sensitive to yeah yeah it actually reminded me when i wrote because i wrote an academic and a popular version of of this article on fine-tuning and cosmopsychism and i actually got an email from um justin gowdry who's a pretty good a really good amateur philosopher who showed me a blog post from 2008 where he basically defended pretty much the same view so he he beat me to it and he's also got a lot of other interesting posts on um this giving us a sense of hope and this informing our our political consciousness that this uh this kind of teleological hope again even if we don't have reason to believe it we might have it might be rationally acceptable to hope for it and that can really inspire perhaps some some forms of political action so you know i think this is really interesting possibilities here that again are, are so often dismissed as kind of hippie or something and i do suspect as to some extent that's a mechanism for you know closing down certain interesting lines of intellectual inquiry fair enough I just wanted to raise in, because I, I personally still feel, not that I'm particularly qualified to make this claim, but I still personally feel quite sceptical about the multiverse theory. And uh, one oh, yeah. quite interesting and maybe slightly obscure criticism of the multiverse theory that relates to your work that I've heard of is that, you know, it could entail that there are more Boltzmann's brains than classically yeah. evolved minds like ours. And so, you know, Boltzmann's brain, for people who don't know, is a complicated and intelligent mind which spontaneously emerges out of the uh, the randomness of entropy and so in the enormity of the multiverse of these trillions of other universes the contention is is that there would actually be many many more of these kinds of bizarre spontaneous minds than there would be uh, minds which evolve in in the classical way like we do and so this apparent absurdity is is thought to count against the plausibility of the multiverse uh, it's not maybe a knockdown argument, but it's quite interesting. Do you still feel that this is a, a valid criticism towards the more Everettian multiverse view that you're becoming more sympathetic with? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think this is certainly an important criticism of inflationary forms of the multiverse based in inflationary cosmology. And actually, also what I've been working on is a certain philosophical criticism of the multiverse hypothesis which is inspired by a paper by uh, the philosopher Roger White in the year 2000 and actually we really see here a failure of the philosophy and the science to connect up there's this kind of really important argument that's just completely unknown outside of the ivory tower of philosophy in these scientific and popular discussions of fine-tuning and, you know, I blame the philosophers to this. You know, they write papers in these incredibly technical Bayesian probability theory and it's, don't make any effort to reach out to a broader audience. So what I'm doing with this new paper on um, fine-tuning in the multiverse hypothesis, I'm going to write an academic version and a popular version to, you know, try and get, get, the, get these points out to the broader discussion. So to just put it briefly, White's argument is that he thinks the proponents of the multiverse hypothesis, at least if they're trying to explain fine-tuning, are committing what he calls the inverted gambler's fallacy. So this is the fallacy of observing an extraordinary event 
and then inferring on that basis that there must be very many similar events that are slightly less extraordinary. So to give a, a vivid example, suppose you, you go into a room in a building and you see a monkey with a typewriter and it's banging away writing you know, perfect English. You think, that's weird. That needs explaining. Uh, you know, maybe maybe you think the, the typewriter's rigged or maybe it's a specially trained monkey. But what you're not going to think, or what you shouldn't think at least, is, oh, there must be many other monkeys with typewriters in these other rooms in this building. Because if there are enough, uh, just writing rubbish, because if there are enough other typewriter, other monkeys with typewriters, then it's not so unlikely that this monkey would be writing English. Now, the reason, so that, if you did that, that would be committing the inverted gambler's fallacy. And the reason that's a fallacy is because, you know, what you need explaining, the only thing you've observed, the only thing you need explaining is why this monkey in front of you is typing English. And no matter how many other monkeys there are elsewhere, it doesn't make it any more likely that this monkey's going to be typing English. So similarly, White thinks that the proponent of the multiverse hypothesis is, make, is committing a similar fallacy. So they observe the fine tuning, say, oh, wow, this is extraordinary. And so they postulate all these other universes. But no matter how many other universes there are out there, it doesn't, it doesn't explain why our universe is fine-tuned. And that's, that's what we need explaining. Now, so a lot of people bring in here the anthropic principle or the um, uh, observation selection effect. But White you know, explains how that's not really relevant to this particular point. I, I talk about this on, um, on my, my video on um, did the universe design itself a talk I gave at Blackfriars at Oxford a few years ago. So I think this is a really good, a really good criticism of um, inflationary cosmology multiverse in terms of its ability to account for the multiverse hypothesis. And the Boltzmann brain you raise is, is another good, another important critique. But I've just become persuaded that actually it's, it's not clear that either of these problems apply to the Everettian version of the multiverse. So, so that's made me kind of think again about maybe Maybe the multiverse can be saved by going the Everettian route rather than this this uh, inflationary route. Yeah, fair enough. So you have mentioned that you know conscious beings contribute to the value of the universe, or they are sensitive to value. Is it also the case, do you think, that consciousness with this dimension of value, which is kind of a part of it, also implies a kind of moral reality? Perhaps not a transcendent source of morality, but for example, a morality based around realizing value in consciousness and the various strategies that we can uh, discover that facilitate that. Does, does panpsychism, do you think, or, or at least the recognition of the significance of consciousness, take us in some sense up the first rung of a ladder towards a, a sort of scientific morality of some description? That's a really interesting question. In fact, there's there's a lot of interesting work emerging in philosophy at the moment, tr trying to connect up uh, consciousness and value. Um, philosopher Uriah Kriegel has uh, some very interesting work on this, and Luke Roloff, who I mentioned earlier, in the context of the combination problem, is has a has a theory of uh, of of how morality emerges from. Our, our need to understand other conscious subjects. He thinks, you know, you, you, you can't really fully understand another conscious subject unless you, as it were, put yourself in their shoes, you know, you get into their perspective. And this necessarily involves a certain kind of moral engagement. 
And so this is where he thinks morality emerges from. I, I'm actually, I might disappoint you a little bit here. I guess I'm a little bit not not so much on board with that project, that, as it were, reductive project, trying to explain value in terms of consciousness. I, I guess I'm sympathetic to David Hume's thought that you can't get from an is to an ought. You can't get from cold-blooded facts about reality to facts about value. And it would seem to me if you, you're trying to do that when you go from just the facts about consciousness to facts about value, uh, you're trying to get from an is to an ought. However, certainly I think um, whatever the ultimate root of value is, certainly consciousness is a great source of value. Consciousness uh, value goes along with consciousness. And the panpsychist picture of the world is a world where the with much more inherent value, I think, you know, if, if, if in the materialist worldview where most of reality is cold, unexperiencing matter, this is really empty of value, although it can have great complexity and splendor, it doesn't really have, it seems to me, any inherent value unless there's somebody there to observe it, somebody there to experience that that majesty and that splendor. Whereas the panpsychist view of the world is teeming with consciousness and in that sense is teeming with value, I think. So this is all part of it being a much more attractive conception of reality. Although, again, we, we need to be careful. We, we, we shouldn't think it's true just because it's a nice theory of reality. But, you know, it's, it, it's good if we've got reason to think it's true. And it also is a very attractive picture of the world we live in. It seems to me that a universe in which uh, consciousness is, is a fundamental aspect of reality, this is a view of the universe in which minds could be uh, meaningfully connected with each other in ways that maybe a materialist view of minds can't explain very well, but that such connections might actually be uh, viewed as very natural in the context of a more holistic understanding of reality that involves consciousness in some deep way. And uh, of course, I'm thinking of phenomena like telepathy, or maybe even synchronicity. And yeah, I don't mean to push this on you because I know this isn't really your area, uh, but just because it has been sort of my um, idiosyncratic experience, maybe with my mentors at Northampton and later at IONS, that I have spent quite a lot of time around some serious scientists who are convinced that telepathy and other psi phenomena of various descriptions do occur and with some pretty strong statistical confidence to to back that up and really the only reason that I'm aware of that why this work is marginalized in the way that it is is not due to its quality necessarily but because it can't be reconciled with materialism or a a strictly brain-based view of the mind and so I just wonder if you've given much thought to these kinds of mental anomalies which are seemingly at least more consistent with the view of reality that you're putting out there. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, it, to be honest, it's I guess it's not something I've really looked into. Um, it's probably something I, sh I should at some point. Um, I guess I'm focused more on the sort of philosophical task of accommodating consciousness. And I suppose, I, I in a way, I see my what, what I'm trying to do as try and be neutral on, on the empirical scientific questions to try and have a a general philosophical theory that could be connected to, to to any kind of scientific empirical data that comes up uh so so there is that urge to try and stay neutral on, on such things um but one thing i would say is it's not obvious to me 
what you said it's inconsistent with materialism it's not obvious to me actually why telepathy is inconsistent with materialism i mean as we've already discussed that um you know quantum entanglement is is one of the most well confirmed phenomena in um in modern science which seems to involve distinct objects behaving in some sense as a unified whole you know, and people accept that as part of a materialist worldview. So, yeah, why do you think it? I'm not sure it, it, it would be. So maybe it's just kind of brute 19th century picture of science that that, that makes people think uh, telepathy doesn't fit. But yeah, wh why do you think it's inconsistent with or difficult for a materialist to um, make sense of telepathy? I think it's, uh, it's, it's more tricky to explain with materialism. I certainly wouldn't say it was impossible. I don't have a ready theory for how sort of information can, say, say coexist in two different minds at once. Uh, but it does seem to me that a view of reality in which consciousness is fundamental, in which uh, consciousness is in some sense continuous with the same currency of, of reality that could exist elsewhere, that there is this continuity between consciousness that exists which is maybe more easy to explain with a more panpsychist view of, of consciousness but you know as you say I, I don't think uh, it's necessarily impossible to explain with materialism but just that it is uh, seemingly more favorable to a panpsychist view that's interesting I, you got me thinking now i need to think about this more but i'm just thinking yeah, you could be a materialist who thinks, well, we've got these brain states that are kind of correlated, maybe not quantum entanglement, but some kind of related phenomenon, which is that there's just some kind of um, non-local connection between brain states. And this facilitates certain kind of telepathic results. Uh, yeah, I do. that would seem to me um, no more a problem for materialists than a panpsychist. I'll have to think about it, though. It's interesting. Say in telepathy, assuming that telepathy is real, and I, I am agnostic about the existence of telepathy, although I do think that there appears to be some good evidence that it occurs, uh, it seems to take place between people who have other kinds of connections between them, like a kind of a meaningful connection between people who are in a relationship or between siblings or twins, and that it seems to be indicative to me that we occupy more of a, of a matrix of meaning rather than strictly a sort of a nuts and bolts reality which is insensitive to consciousness and, and the meanings that exist between people. You know, telepathy seems to be an expression of meaning. When telepathy occurs, assuming that it does occur, it seems to be an exercise of, of, of meaning, a bit like how you see a spark moving from two conductive points of metal, maybe meaning is in some sense operating in the same way in reality. No, that's good. So, yeah, actually, that makes more sense of why it would be harder to fit with materialism. So I was just thinking about the non-local bit, thinking, well, why can't a materialist think there's non-local connections? In fact, materialists do think there are non-local connections because they believe in quantum entanglements. So I don't see it. But, but now you actually what you say makes sense because that it, so if telepathy is more about um, yeah the, the, the meaning of human connections and it, it's sort of reflection of that, then yeah, that would be inconsistent with a materialist mechanism. So that's interesting. So I suppose if, if a materialist wanted to accommodate telepathy, they'd have to give some reductive story that it's about, you know, it's actually more to do with the um, physical proximity of people, a kind of non-local connection builds up r rather than any of these things to do with meaning. But 
hey, there's a there's a paper there. Is telepathy inconsistent materialism, or is it fit better? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the last thing that I wanted to get your thoughts about, Philip, today is experiences of of the transpersonal. Uh, you've mentioned before at some point elsewhere that you you do believe in, in a transcendent reality or, and that this is also a transcendent reality that we can have a relationship with. So during a mystical experience of some kind, perhaps someone experiences a very profound oneness with all reality, how do you think about what's going on there? Is this maybe a direct experience of the reality of, of cosmopsychism? How do you think about this? I guess it's to do with value, really, and relates to what we were saying about is, is, and oughts. Um... Just as I think that you can't explain consciousness in conventional scientific terms, I, similarly, I don't think you can explain value in, in conventional scientific terms. Um, nonetheless, I think we encounter value in, in lived human experience. It's, it's maybe not as, it's not as certain as, as the reality of consciousness. You know, the reality of your own pain is, is pretty hard to deny. But, you know, it could be, it could be that our sense of value is some kind of illusion or projection of our sentiment as Hume said we get we may gild gild and stain the world with our sentiment lovely phrase so you know you've got to acknowledge that as a possibility more so than in the case of consciousness being an illusion but still I'm inclined to maybe it's partly a leap of faith partly trust my sense that there is objective value and given that the, the facts of natural science are valueless value must in some sense have its source beyond um, the world as we know about it through science. Uh, yeah, and I suppose that, that would be the core of, of my spirituality is that's what I would call the, this transcendent source of meaning and value. And I suppose I think, you know, I try to, in some sense, orientate myself, relate to that. Um, but how does it relate to panpsychism? Um, I guess a common sense assumption is throughout history, people have had these kind of experiences you refer to, this sense of... Um, a wondrous reality and that in some sense reveals a kind of a oneness and a unity. I guess people in general assume that if such experiences are, are genuine, they're revealing something supernatural, something outside of the physical world. And that's why I guess many materialists think, um, well, they must be sort of delusions or something, something funny going on in the brain. But actually, if you adopt this Russell Eddington view, that actually we don't know the intrinsic nature of physical reality, we don't know the intrinsic nature of space and time, then it's at least an option to suppose that that reality that the, that the mystic is aware of, is directly aware of, that wondrous reality, could be an aspect of the intrinsic nature of physical reality. So we don't need to suppose necessarily that it's something supernatural, something outside of the physical universe. It could be an aspect of the the intrinsic nature of space-time, for example. So I, I, I rather speculatively explore that that, that option in um, in the final chapter of my book. So yeah, I mean, to some degree, I'm, I, I'm agnostic on these things. Um, I meditate every morning, but I've not as yet had a, 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 a mystical experience. Uh, so, you know, I have to remain somewhat agnostic. Yeah, if you're, a, if you're a materialist, I suppose you have to think pretty much mystical experiences are delusions because, you know, it, it's so ill-fitting with your worldview. But if you're a panpsychist and you already think uh, fundamental reality is in some sense constituted of consciousness, uh, then it's, you know, I guess it's not, not, not much of a step further to suppose that um, 
what is experienced in the in the mystical experience might be some aspect of that fundamental consciousness reality. Yeah, so I'm a agnostic, but more open-minded than I could be if I had other worldviews. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, like you said, a materialist kind of has to say that everything that we do experience can only reflect our sort of specific mental architecture. But the idea that an experience of oneness and, and totality could actually be an echo of some deep truth about reality, it's certainly easier to imagine that that could be the case if you have a more panpsychist view of consciousness. Yeah, that definitely seems to be more consonant with um, with the panpsychist worldview, where um, already there is some kind of consciousness involving reality. I would always want to emphasise that we can distinguish the cold-blooded scientific philosophical question of how to integrate consciousness into reality from more spiritual or mystical speculations and you know a lot of people like david chalmers luke roloff's a complete atheist material not materialist sorry <laughs> complete atheist panpsychists and um you know i once asked chalmers if he uh if he had any religious or spiritual views and he said only that the universe is cool so you know i think he's you know this is a cold a cold-blooded intellectual scientific task of how to integrate consciousness it needn't necessarily be wrapped up with 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 any um spiritual or mystical beliefs but obviously there's a clear sense in which you know if for independent reasons you you do have certain spiritual beliefs that they seem to be more consonant with a panpsychist view than a, a materialist worldview for example well philip it's been really great to talk to you i've got loads more to ask you so i'd love to have another conversation at some point in the future but in the meantime, where should people go if they'd like to learn more about your ideas and stay up to date with what you're up to? Ah, well, I have a website, philipgoffphilosophy.com and, and a blog, conscienceandconsciousness.com, which is terribly titled. To, but uh, you can get to that from my website. So this new book, Galileo's Error, Foundations for a, a New Science of Consciousness, coming out August 15th in the UK, the US, and later in Portugal, Portuguese, if you're a Portuguese listener. Having read the last chapter of Galileo's Error, I can say that I found it very interesting, so I can personally oh. recommend at least one chapter of the book. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> also, Twitter, I, I'm on Twitter at, at philip under slash goff, that's philip with one L and G-O-F-F, so uh, yeah, I like Twitter interaction takes up too much of my time unfortunately i'll make sure that there's links to to everything that you've just mentioned in the description of this episode well philip uh, thank you again very much for joining me today and uh, i know that i'll uh, continue to follow your work with interest oh thanks a lot adrian i've really it's been a really stimulating conversation thanks hi everyone i hope you enjoyed today's conversation with the philosopher philip goff as always, I'm definitely interested to hear what your thoughts were today about the ideas we got into. Uh, is panpsychism a plausible theory? Could the entire universe be somehow conscious of itself? Remember that if you enjoy these open-minded philosophical conversations exploring consciousness and its place in reality, please consider supporting Waking Cosmos over at patreon.com slash wakingcosmos. The link to that is in the description, and of course all Patreon subscribers get early access to every episode. And a huge thank you to my existing supporters who are gradually helping me turn this into a full-time project. As always, 
liking and sharing this episode is really helpful algorithmically, which of course helps Waking Cosmos to find its audience. That is about it from me today though. I will be back next time for more episodes exploring consciousness and its place in reality. But until then, have a beautiful day.